we didn't quite get to finish what we were talking about yesterday, and we will not go into a lot of detail because we'll be getting further behind if we... <coughs> Thank you. Uh, if we do, but we had just uh, completed a very brief sketch of the uh, development of the four great empires that were symbolized in Daniel by Nebuchadnezzar's image and by the four beasts that uh, are described in J Daniel chapter 7. And out of the fourth beast there from Daniel came the great apostasy of the West, as it has sometimes been termed. Now, as we mentioned uh, briefly, just as we were closing, there was also another apostasy in the East being developed at the same time as the one in the West, and that was Islam or Mohammedanism. And uh, that has not been given as prominent a place in Scripture as the apostasy of the West. Uh, consequently, students of prophecy have not uh, uh, dealt with it nearly as much as they have the uh, apostasy of the West. But we will uh, be, uh, the Lord willing, uh, referring to it as we go along because it features in to our consideration of the time periods that we expect to deal with. Now, it's interesting uh, the manner in which these two apostases are expounded in Scripture. Now, the uh, four beasts are dealt with in Daniel, almost, well, they, they feature in the Revelation also, but we find most of the information about them in Daniel, while the apostasy of the East is scarcely touched on, if at all, in Daniel, but we find it being symbolized in Revelation, its uh, appearance on the scene and some of the things that would be done uh, by this uh, apostasy and its uh, ultimate downfall. Now, as we mentioned yesterday, Islam or Mohammedanism made its or originated with the Arabs or the Saracens. And as we pointed out, the name Saracen is, according to Gibbon, taken from Sarah, the name Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, we didn't do a very good job illustrating that to you. left an A out of the word. <laughs> it should be S-A-R-A-C-E-N-S, -E and I left the second A out. But that uh, shows that it is much more closely related to the name Sarah than you might think in just uh, looking at it quickly. But this was a, a kind of religion that uh, was spread by the edge of the sword, and uh, while it was um, a very cruel treatment that was uh, resulted from this, we can recognize that those uh, upon whom this vengeance was poured was the worshipers of the beast and the false prophet. And uh, this was the punishment that God had in store for them. This didn't just happen accidentally this way. This was a part of God's judgments for what had um, for what had been believed and what had been practiced by that apostasy, that was the 
the subject of all of this. Now the uh, uh, Islam began to encroach upon the eastern half of the Roman Empire about the middle of the 7th century. And now that would put it right in the same time frame with the rise of the papacy because the decree of focus, you recall, uh, back to 606 to 610. So uh, that's about the time, just a little ahead of uh, Islam. Uh, Muhammad himself, uh, the uh, Hagera, or flight of Muhammad, occurred in 622. And the fall of Jerusalem into the hands of the uh, Saracens occurred in 637. Now that was an important event because it marked a, uh, the time when the four beasts of Daniel lost their power over the promised land. Now they didn't, as we indicated, they didn't all rule over the promised land at once. They ruled in turn. First Babylon, and then the Medes and the Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans. Now when uh, the, uh, the Arabs captured Jerusalem, the last, the fourth beast, lost its power or control over the promised land and over Jerusalem. And now it's interesting also, as we indicated yesterday, that this period of time that the Gentiles were to rule over the land and Israel was to be subjected to the rule and the persecution of their enemies, 2,520 years. Now that's divided right down the middle by the Saracens appearing on the scene when they did. 1,260 years the land was ruled over by one or the other of the four beasts, and the last 1,260 years of that period of time the land was ruled over by Islam, or the Mohammedans, first the Arabs and then the Turks, or the Ottomans. Now the Mosque of Omar, it has been said, was erected on the site of Solomon's Temple in Jerusalem in the year of 657. Now if you look that up in an encyclopedia or a history book, you'll usually see a, a date something like 690 or 691. Now I think uh, that uh, that is the time that the mosque was completed and the, the date we have here, 657, was the time that it was begun. But we find an interesting factor involved with this, this date, 657, when we move on down through our future lessons. Now the rise of Islam was described or is described in symbol during the sounding of the fifth trumpet in Revelation chapter 9 verses 1 through 11. Now we won't take the time to read those, you can read them, but it's where the locust came out of the bottomless pit and uh, with all the scorpion-like appearance and all of this, that's the coming out of, uh, of, of uh, Arabia, of the Arabian Nights, when they came out uh, and swarmed over the entire portion of the eastern half of the Roman Empire. And before their power began to wane, they ruled from India to Africa. And they even were in a part of Europe. Now, I'm sure any of you who have been exposed to Spanish literature know about the Moors in Spain. The Moors were the Arabs, 
that were there ruling Spain for some 200 years and uh, are the Saracens. <clears throat> but it was also interesting that they were not able to get into France. They were not able to subdue France. They were defeated by Charles Martel in France. And the reason we say this is interesting is because we touched on something yesterday which indicates that God had something else in mind for France, and that was the place for the little horn of the fourth beast to reach its maturity. And in 800 uh, A.D., it did in the alliance between the Pope and Charlemagne, king of France. Now, if the Moors had been in France, this would have totally changed the picture. But it was decreed by God that this should not happen, that the little horn of the fourth beast was going to hold forth there. So uh, they were unable, and as far as I know, that's the only place they were defeated and thrown back in their, the entire time that they were coming like locusts and eating up the whole of the eastern half of the Roman Empire. Of course, France was not a part of the eastern half, neither was Spain. But uh, Spain, of course, didn't have the prominent part to play in the development of the plan and purpose of God that France did. <clears throat> now, about the year of 1000, another power appeared on the scene, and that is the Turks. And they converted to Islam, of course, and their rise to power is described in the uh, sounding of the trumpets also, and it is the uh, sounding of the sixth trumpet that mentioning the loosing of the uh, four angels in the Euphrates, and that's Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 through 21. And when uh, their time came to appear upon the scene, hordes of Turks poured into what had been the eastern half of the Roman Empire, and ultimately the mighty Ottoman Empire was founded. Now, while their ascension to power was described as the loosing of the angels of the Euphrates in Revelation 9:14, you find that reference, something else was also revealed about them in the Apocalypse, and that is in the 16th chapter, in the 12th verse, which describes the pouring out of the sixth vial. And there it was said that the great river Euphrates would be dried up. In other words, the loosing of the angels of the Euphrates uh, was to indicate or herald the uh, rise of the Ottomans, but the drying up of the Euphrates indicated the loss in power of the Turks or Ottomans. So their doom then was sealed, we might say, uh, before they ever came on the scene, the students of prophecy uh, would have known, and many students of prophecy, as we will quote as we go through our next lesson here, this today's lesson, uh, the students of prophecy knew for a long time what was in store for Turkey because they recognized that the river Euphrates was a term used to symbolize the Turkish or Ottoman power. Now we have, in, in way of a brief review, we have considered the exaltation of the kingdoms of men and the subduing of the kingdom of God of the past, of the kingdom of Israel. 
that was brought to us in Nebuchadnezzar's image and in the four beasts of Daniel. And we considered also briefly the ten horns of the fourth beast of Daniel and the little horn of the fourth beast, which we have found that uh, uh, was used to symbolize or represent the union between church and state. Now that occurred between the emperor in Constantinople and the pope in Rome first, but it reached the zenith of its power when uh, the uh, alliance was uh, reached between the pope and Charlemagne, king of France. And it continued, that alliance continued, not between France and the pope always, but between other nations, Germany, Spain, various nations, and finally Austria. <coughs> So out of all of this and the little horn of the fourth beast was the apostasy of the West, and we have just finished uh, a brief discussion of the apostasy of the East. And the important thing there that we recognize and we want to bear in mind was the time period when the apostasy of the East took over in the promised land from the apostasy of the West, thus dividing the 2,520 years in half two periods of 1260 years each. Now in uh, the 16th chapter of Revelation, we find the pouring out of the seven vials described. Now the first uh, uh, five of those vials represents primarily the uh, what happened uh, as a result of the French Revolution. The French Revolution itself is not necessarily uh, symbolized in this, as and as we indicated before, we're going to Dr. Thomas for our interpretation of uh, the part of the apocalypse that we're discussing here. And as Dr. Thomas discussed it, the first five vials that were poured out had to do with the wars that occurred in the aftermath of the French Revolution. The, the period of time in which Napoleon was marching into all the nations of Europe and every crown head in Europe was in jeopardy uh, as a result of uh, the activity of Napoleon. And much of the uh, uh, judgments of God that were poured out as a result of these vials was poured upon the little horn of Daniel's fourth beast, or the two-horned beast of Revelation 13, 11, and 12. Now, uh, if you look at Revelation uh, 13, 11, and 12, you find a beast appearing there that had two horns. Now, we understand this beast represents the same power as the little horn of Daniel's fourth beast, and, but uh, it's uh, represented in different ways in that the two uh, features of this horn is represented as two horns in Revelation, but in Daniel these same features are represented as the horn itself and the eyes and mouth, the horn itself being the uh, military or civil power, the secular power, and the eyes and mouth representing the ecclesiastical power. And instead of that being represented in this same way in Revelation, the same power is represented as two horns. So uh, it, that's what uh, the uh, subject of much of the uh, judgments 
pour, or many of the judgments poured out during this Napoleonic period was upon that beast, the two-horned beast of Revelation, or the little horn with eyes and mouth of Daniel. <clears throat> and of course, we, we would expect Austria to receive the lion's share of these uh, judgments because at this point in time, Austria was the protector of the Pope, of the papacy. And the, the papacy, much of this was directed at the papacy. So in order to get at the papacy, of course, Austria had to be neutralized to some extent. So if you read the history of that period of time, you will find that uh, Napoleon was every change of the moon almost was mar marching off to Austria or <coughs> someplace, <coughs> excuse me, in between where he would, with about half as many soldiers as Austria had, defeat them. And so as a result of this repeated uh, warfare that occurred between France and Austria, and Austria always on the losing end of all of this, uh, her power was gradually eroded until she could no longer adequately protect the papacy or the pope. And actually, the Pope himself uh, was uh, experienced a number of setbacks at the hand of Napoleon, as I mentioned yesterday, even to being carried as a prisoner to Paris and seeing some of the papal states uh, annexed by France during that period of time. Now, Dr. Thomas, in viewing the pouring out of these vials on the worshipers of the beast and the false prophet, saw in this a type, now we've been talking about types, and Dr. Thomas saw in this a type of the pouring out of God's judgments on Babylon the Great at the second coming of Christ. So in a very limited way, then, we would have to, I think, if uh, this is correct, if we view it in this light, we would recognize that Napoleon, in a very limited sense, was a type of Christ. Now, that should not come as a shock to us because we recognize from the 45th chapter of Isaiah that Cyrus, who conquered Babylon, was also definitely a type of Christ. And uh, that reference in the 45th chapter of Isaiah, he was even referred to as the Lord's anointed, although uh, it is indicated that he did not know God. He knew nothing of the God of Israel, but due to the fact that he was... Uh, chosen to carry out the plan and purpose of God, he was considered in a very limited way as the Lord's anointed. But of course, we know the real Lord's anointed is Christ, who will conquer Babylon the Great, as Cyrus conquered ancient Babylon in times of old. Now, we are mostly interested now, let us turn to the 16th chapter of Revelation, and we are primarily interested in the sixth vial, the sixth and seventh, that uh, were being poured out. In the, the sixth vial we find in verses 12 through 16. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the waters thereof were dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. 
And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Now listen what we're going to read next. Now we're still reading about the pouring out of the sixth vial. This next statement isn't, doesn't come with something else. This is a part of the pouring out of the sixth vial, or at least during the pouring out of the sixth vial. Christ said to John, Behold, I come as a thief. Now this indicates to us the period in which Christ is going to come. It's going to be during the period of the pouring out of the sixth vial. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Now these are real words that should concern us. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Now the 17th verse starts with the seventh, pouring out of the seventh vial. <clears throat> Now, as we have indicated, the pouring out uh, or the drying up of the river Euphrates during the pouring out of the sixth vial had to do with the drying up or the evaporation of the power of the Ottoman or Turkish Empire. Now, to begin with, when the uh, Turkish Empire or the Turkish people began to pour into the eastern half of the Roman Empire, they were symbolized as the four angels of the Euphrates. And it says in uh, uh, Revelation, the ninth chapter, uh, it says, Loose the four angels uh, in the, of the Euphrates, or in the Euphrates. But Dr. Thomas translated that like this. Loose the four angels which have been bound by the great river Euphrates. So this would indicate that the Turks had been held back, so to speak, by the Euphrates River or on the east side of the Euphrates River until their time came to perform their little part in the human drama directed by God and uh, starring the kingdoms of men during that period of time, they were held back uh, east of that river until their time came, which was about 1000 BC or AD. <clears throat> and it's interesting uh, to uh, look at history and see how God, through the hand of providence, did hold back and direct and develop and bring nations upon the scene at the exact right time to perform their part in this drama of which we speak. Now we might ask the questions, how appropriate is it really for the Turks to be symbolized by the Euphrates? Well, of course, we already have one clue. They were held back by it or east of it until the time came for them to play their part in this drama, but the, it goes uh, much deeper than that. The real basis, of course, goes back to the ancient city of Babylon. 
Now, during that, uh, that time, or that is, that city was built along the Euphrates River on each side of it so that the Euphrates River flowed right through the ancient city of Babylon. Now, Babylon has become a symbol or a type of the kingdoms of men in general. While it was the first of these four kingdoms itself, literally, it has become a symbol of all the kingdoms of men. Now, we see this in the fourth chapter of Daniel. Now, in there, the uh, king, Nebuchadnezzar, saw this great tree, and it was cut down. And Daniel told him, this represents you. You're King Nebuchadnezzar. You're this tree, and it's cut uh, down. You saw it cut down. But the uh, interesting thing is the stump of that tree was not taken out. It was left in the ground, and it was to continue for seven times. And we've been talking about that right along. That's the times of the Gentiles, the time that Israel would be subdued, subjected. Uh, and it, we know it to be a period of 2,520 years. So uh, during the 2,520 years, even after uh, Babylon would be subdued by the Medes and the Persians, they were a symbol of still, they were still there as a symbol. And even right up to the coming of Christ, because in the last few chapters of Revelation, you find the destruction of Babylon the Great, and that's at the coming of Christ. So that's the whole of the organizations of the kingdoms of men that will be destroyed, all symbolized by Babylon. All right, now, with that in mind, we see the possibilities, possibility of a lot of types and shadows coming out of Babylon. Israel's captivity there in Babylon in the time of Daniel and Ezekiel uh, was a type of the dispersion of the Jewish people of Israel among all the nations of the world that began in 70 A.D. when their city was destroyed by the Romans. It didn't, they weren't dis, uh, dispersed immediately, but they ultimately were. And of course, the, only a remnant of them had come back from the Babylonian captivity anyway, but they were there and they were dispersed. And we see, uh, as we have mentioned, Cyrus, who conquered Babylon, we see in that a type of Christ who will conquer and subdue and destroy Babylon the Great. So we now see the Euphrates, which flowed through ancient Babylon as a type of Turkey, whose political and military power flowed through that portion of Babylon the Great that once comprised the eastern half of the Roman Empire. So what we're seeing here is the actual literal river of Euphrates flowed through the literal city of Babylon, and in much the same way the political river of Turkey flowed through the eastern half of the Roman Empire, or that portion of Babylon the Great. So now we, we can see, if we view it in this light, how appropriate it is for Turkey to have been symbolized as the great river Euphrates. Now let's return to the sixth vial, the pouring out of the sixth vial. And we notice that a number of things really occur. And one of them is the drying up of the river Euphrates. 
Now, the, uh, to use the term drying up would indicate a gradual loss in power of Turkey. And we might say, first of all, as we have indicated already that we would refer to this, that uh, scholars long recognized that the Euphrates did symbolize Turkey. Now, that wasn't, uh, the Christadelphians are not the first ones to recognize that. Uh, Turkey was identified as the Euphrates uh, long before the time of Dr. Thomas. Uh, and one, one such scholar was quoted by Dr. Thomas in the Eurekas. Tillinghast, a commentator who wrote over 200 years ago, now that was uh, the writing, that's the writing of Dr. Thomas, and Dr. Thomas was writing that about 1868, and he said uh, that uh, Tillinghast wrote 200 years before that time, and quoted in Eliot's notes in uh, the exposition of this vial says, by the river Euphrates we are to understand the Ottoman or Turkish empire. It is called the great river because of the multitude of people and nations therein. The people who at the present time are of all, now if that would have been back in the 17th century, it would have been the present time for this writer, who at the present time are of all others accounted the greatest are the Turks. Therefore, who therefore and no other are here to be understood, especially as the Euphrates of Apocalypse 9, under the sounding of the sixth trumpet, by general consent of expositors, has reference to the Turkish power. Now, we have a lot of parenthetical uh, statements in this, but it all boils down to this commentator some 200 years before Dr. Thomas was writing the last volume of Eureka had definitely identified Turkey as the great river, great river Euphrates. Now, although the identity of this uh, of the Euphrates River was known, the, that is, these, that power which was symbolized by the Euphrates was known, uh, there were scholars who could not possibly see how such a great and mighty power as the Ottoman Empire would ever be dried up or lose its power. Because although even drawing nearer the time that it actually happened, uh, Turkey itself had been left almost totally unscathed by the wars that were carried on by Napoleon and, and by which the power of Austria was dissipated. Uh, nothing happened to Turkey during that time, nothing or very little adverse. So while the uh, uh, students recognized <clears throat> that uh, Turkey was the uh, power symbolized uh, as the river Euphrates, they couldn't understand how it would lose its power. Now, Dr. Thomas also quotes uh, the, from the writings of one of those people. And uh, this is, uh, we're, we're quoting first here now from Dr. Thomas himself. This was so manifest, that is, that Turkey was the, uh, symbolized by the Euphrates. This was so manifest that a Protestant writer in the, in the year after, and now the year after is 1802, if you read the whole, uh, uh, take all of this quotation in context, 
he was talking about the year after 18.2, and that was three years before Dr. Thomas was born. And speculating upon this vial, expressed his wonder how the prophecy was to be fulfilled. And a dominion still so mighty in arms and population could be wasted and dried up. This, this man wondered how it could be done. And now uh, Dr. Thomas starts quoting that particular commentator. By what means, says he, the Turkish Empire shall be reduced to this helpless state, an empire formerly distinguished for its enthusiastic loyalty and valor, and which is even at this day of 18.2 as populous as any other upon the earth the Chinese accepted. Now, how this will be dried up is not intimated in this verse, and will perhaps remain concealed until the events themselves shall remove the veil. However, this is certain from the evident purpose of the text that a very extraordinary indifference or disaffection in, in the people to the government must take place to fulfill this part of the prophecy. Now, that's taken from Eureka, volume 3b, page 154. Now, what he was saying here is actually it would probably probably be through rebellion, revolution, civil war, and this sort of thing within the empire itself that would bring about the destruction or the drying up of the power of Turkey rather than the empire being conquered uh, from some external foe. And that is exactly what happened. This drying up process began with the Greek rebellion which took place in 1820. Now, the Greeks successfully rebelled. They were a part of the Ottoman Empire, but they successfully rebelled against Turkey, and this was the beginning of the drying up or the loss in power of Turkey. And that was followed by other insurrections and disasters, plagues, earthquakes, and wars, until finally the political and military efficacy of Turkey was well on its way to being dried up or evaporated. In fact, you will find in the writings of the pioneers, uh, very often they refer to the Turkish sultan as the sick man of Europe. I'm sure that's a, a term you're all familiar with. And finally, the Turks were driven out of Palestine, their last uh, colonial holding, by England during World War I, and the date of that was 1917. Remember that. That's one pretty close uh, at hand, and we, ought to, uh, we'll, we can remember that, I think. 1917 is an important date, very important. Now we might consider briefly the purpose for which the power of the Euphrates was dried up. And that was, in the words in the translation of Dr. Thomas, that the way of the kings who were out of a son's rising might be prepared. Now that, of course, uh, turns our attention toward Christ and the saints. Because in the very next, or uh, we only move down uh, slightly in this 16th chapter of Revelation until we read the term that Christ, where Christ said, Behold, I come as a thief. So Christ and the saints are going to make their uh, appearance at this time. 
Now, it isn't that Turkey had to be removed, that Christ and the saints could not have taken the land if Turkey had not have been removed. But as Dr. Thomas said, uh, this up to this point, the appearance and the, the work of Christ is going to be done very quietly, calling the saints to judgment, perhaps, perhaps, to Sinai. Uh, and uh, it will all be done very quietly without the world generally knowing about it until they make their appearance on the scene as the uh, Christ, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, but that will not be until he has done the first part of his work uh, that is going to be done. But the next thing we read about is the uh, three unclean spirit-like frogs in verse 13. Now, we have already read that during our reading of the, pour, of the pouring out of this sixth vial. Now, these says, uh, three unclean spirit-like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophets. Now, the frog power or influence in all of this has been identified by Dr. Thomas as France. Now, I think this uh, is correct because their progenitors came from the marshes of Westphalia, and the uh, symbol of frogs has been was used in the early history of the Gauls uh, on their armor, on their uh, shields, and on their banners. We see uh, pictures or sketches of frogs. <clears throat> now, uh, the, uh, Dr. Thomas uh, identifies these others. We'll go down and, and without referring to that further, but he uh, identifies them in this way. The dragon of the 19th century, of the t his, at the time of his writing, uh, as the Ottoman Empire enthroned in Constantinople, the beast originally founded by Charlemagne and Pope Leo III in 800 A.D. We talked about that yesterday. But in this particular time, represented by Austria and enthroned in Vienna, the false prophet, the papacy, and the false prophet or papacy enthroned in Rome. Now, the dragon is used synonymously with the serpent in Revelation chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. And although this was a different manifestation of the dragon that described in the 12th chapter of Revelation as the one uh, identified here as Turkey, it was nevertheless the same influence and is used to symbolize, really, sin manifested in the flesh the devil, and Satan. <clears throat> now, Dr. Thomas uh, identifies the unclean spirit-like frogs which came out of the mouth of these unholy powers as sanguinary and warlike policies manifested by them. Now, we recognize today in 1982 that uh, the political and military and economic structure of Europe has changed vastly. Austria is no longer the secular horn of the two-horned beast of Revelation or the horn of the little horn having eyes in the mouth. And the drying up of the river Euphrates is completed, or very nearly so, so Turkey is not the great power that it was at one time. And the false prophet no longer enjoys the extensive temporal power that he once had. 
But though uh, Dr. Thomas did not live to see all these things completed as we see them today, nevertheless, he expected them to, to follow the exact path as they have. You will find that in his writings, that he did expect them to lose their power as they have. And the three unclean spirit-like frogs reduced to their lowest denominator as envisioned in Eureka represents sin imperially manifested in the flesh. Now you'll find that term used by Dr. Thomas in Eureka, uh, volume 3, 3b, page 160. That's the red volumes. Now sin in the flesh, or the seed of the serpent, is that which motivates individuals to rebel against God. Now that when we go to the lowest denominator of the problems that uh, are in the world, we come down to the individual manifestation of sin in the flesh, that which originated with the uh, advent of sin in the Garden of Eden. But when, uh, when individuals are motivated by the seed of the serpent, consolidate, that is, when a group of people, all motivated by the seed of the serpent or sin in the flesh, when they consolidate their efforts the resulting amalgamation symbolizes the seed of the serpent in multitudinous or imperial manifestation. So that's the reason we find whole nations and empires being referred to by this term, the devil and Satan, because they are all, uh, they're a group of people all together uh, motivated by the sin in the flesh, or the devil and Satan. <clears throat> now, this manifest manifestation of the seed of the serpent became apparent as a result of the French Revolution, because this brought about a change, a drastic change in the structure of society, because this was, the French Rep Revolution was the rise of the third estate. Now, in the French social order, there were three estates. The first one, the, uh, pa the, uh, the religious uh, people, the, the, not the papacy, the clergy, was the first estate, uh, the nobility, the second estate, and the common people, the third estate. Now, never before had there been a time when the third estate, or the common people, had risen up in this way. The American Revolution was not that kind of a revolution. The uh, American Revolution was the second estate that are brought about by the second estate and for the second estate, the aristocracy. But this was the, uh, the common people. And uh, when, what we now hear about a great deal, the right of uh, human uh, uh, and the necessity of protecting human dignity came about as a result of the uh, French Revolution. And these same unclean-like, uh, spirit-like frogs, a manifestation of sin in the flesh, is still with us. And that's, is, it is this influence that is fomenting revolution worldwide today. And it is this influence that will ultimately gather the nations to the great battle of the day, on the day of the God Almighty to... Uh, <laughs> What a word am I trying to think of? Armageddon, Armageddon. I, I know my time's up, and I'm. Uh, uh, there's a lot can be said about this, but we 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 can't we can't say it all if we had had all year. <laughs>